Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Welcome to Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK. It is the April Fool's edition, the baseball opening day edition, the white face mask edition, the Sabres have won one in a row edition. Take your pick. Maybe we'll cover some of that. Maybe we'll cover none of it. But I am Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic, and Jonah Bronstein of the Bronstein Firm. And uh, boys, just want to uh, jump in on any of those topics today uh, regarding uh, the fact that April Fool's Day really is not all that funny. I'll, I'll just go ahead and state my case. Uh People are going apeshit that it's snowing on baseball opening day when it does so pretty much every year in one ballpark or another. But people are just amazed that they're playing baseball in the snow today based, uh, based on what I saw on uh, Twitter. And they are going equally apeshit that the Bills will have white face masks this year. Your thoughts? Well, I know Joan is a big fan of April Fool's Day, so I'll let him kick it off. My favorite day of the year. We can April tell Fools. last time. Did anybody fall for any April Fool's jokes today or in recent memory where you're really kicking yourself for how stupid you are for falling for any of these jokes? No, I no. can't think of any. I fell for the face mask one just because I didn't think it was a joke. I just saw gray face masks and I thought, okay, I guess that's the color of the face mask. And I went about my day. Yeah, I didn't really watch the face mask video because I assumed it was some sort of joke. And I don't know, I just kind of let it run its course, you know, with it being April Fool's Day. And um, we only have so much time on this, this planet and so much energy throughout the course of a day to be watching videos like that as uh, worrying about, I don't know, I, I don't know if that falls under the umbrella of the beat, worrying about what color the face masks are, but I, I really try to leave that one outside of my, my, my radar a little bit. Well, what about uniforms in general? Uh, I had a discussion with uh, a friend of mine on uh, Twitter DM today. Uh, he sent me a, uh, a DM that was pretty much, hey, did I miss something about face? Did, when did face masks become a big thing? Um, and we had a bat, little bit of a back and forth regarding uh, just uniforms in general. I, yeah, I, you know, you see a classic uniform, a throwback brings back some sentiment, uh, some sentimental thoughts. Um, 
you know, a helmet redesign. I mean, all this stuff, and you really get it in hockey with the third jersey and all this stuff. I really don't care. I don't have a hard opinion on uniforms. Are you guys uniform guys? I feel like the uniform as a whole is sort of newsy because there's a business element, there's a branding element, and you're trying to sell those jerseys. I don't know. I, I don't. I think the Bills have really good uniforms, like pretty solid, you know. I'm not into power ranking the uniforms. Usually it's just like that's good or that's bad. Like they're just kind of in one bucket. or There's some that are just obviously bad and some that are obviously uh, pretty good. If somebody doesn't like a uniform I like, that's fine. You know, it's it's really no big deal. I used to. And Matthew, if somebody doesn't like a uniform, just give it a few years. I recall the Phoenix Coyotes, the old desert coyote. It was kind of done up in the old Southwestern motif, um, you know, back in the early days of the of the Phoenix Coyotes. And it was universally disliked because it just wasn't hockey. Uh, It was too Native American or whatever it was. People just didn't like it. And then they reintroduced it last year or the year before. And people were euphoric that they brought back the old coyote. It's just, it's all about triggering a thought in your head. I mean, nobody really ever judges them based on the actual design or the fashion. You know, it's, it's all just a feel. So that's why gut feel, like, like I say, one, one, what do I remember from when I was a kid? I like those, those coyotes uniforms and you're right. The older they get, the better they get, the more, you know, People love looking at them and, you know, it brings back memories. I don't know if that will ever happen. Like, as we have this conversation, the first thing that pops into my head is the Dallas Stars uniforms at the present moment are a little, little obnoxious. But maybe someday I'll look back on them and, you know, and think otherwise. Um, you know, people were all over the Jaguars a few years ago when they had the two-tone helmet, like, fading into a different color. And they've sent, I think a lot of times the teams that just go back to keeping it simple, you know, it's like they kind of end up working around all these uniforms, like the Sabres. And then all of a sudden they just have to go back to the one they did 30 years ago. And everybody's like, oh yeah, this is great. This is just what we wanted. And I think that's why the Bills are in good shape. The Patriots just changed their uniforms. And I thought they were fine before that. And they changed them and now they look a little funny. So um, I think it's normally just like a, change your uniform, sell a bunch of jerseys. Like it's a nice business move to make a subtle change. And then, yeah, there's probably an algorithm where you can notice that your sales are plateauing and all right, time to make a change just to get people to get the next version of the, well, Tom Brady's a bad example because, you know, he, he switched teams, but if somebody has been with the team for a long time, like a Jack Eichel, I'm sure there are people who have five different Jack Eichel jerseys because you got to have each one that he's ever worn the different numbers uh, when he went from 15 to nine, all that stuff. It was 15, right? 15. Yeah. He was 15. Same as his draft year. And then he switched uh, to a Vander Kane's number, but I think you can, like, if you're the bills, uh, Joe um, from Buffalo wins, Twitter account was making the point today that like the bills have enough name brand players that if you, if they switch the uniform, they'd probably, it'd be a good time to do it because people want their Josh Allen Jersey, their Stefan Diggs Jersey, 
uh, Trenavius White. You know, they have these guys that, right. that people would actually want to buy their jerseys. You know, like whenever they switched to this current uniform in like 2010-ish or whatever it was, you know, I'm not sure people were tripping over themselves to get their Trent Edwards jerseys. Um, maybe they were. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I guess the, the face masks is the, uh, is the subtle change. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think they should change the uniforms. I think they're pretty good. A hype video for a face mask, really two of them, right? Because it was, because it was April fool. So you had to have the setup and then the punchline. Um, Jonah enjoyed it. Effort went into that. Jonah got a kick out of it. I mean, I watched the video with no sound and thought it was well-produced. That was the extent of my take. What about Roy Williams? Were you, uh, did you think that was? Well, I found that amusing. I didn't really think that was a joke, but I did see a lot of people thinking it might have been an April Fool's joke and maybe making a joke that it was an April Fool's joke. What what was it for people who were just, well, they're Roy Williams retiring as coach of North Carolina basketball, 33 years, I think, counting his years at Kansas. Do you think he's done, done, or is this a, um, uh, you know, Roberto Duran, or, you I know, it's, it's tough Williams, to get it out yeah. of your system. I do think Roy Williams is done, just because I think, like, you know, North Carolina was his forever job his last job so if he's retiring from North Carolina you know it's like Dean Smith retiring you know he's done just like Dean Smith was done and as the reports are saying it's a little bit like when John Beeline left Michigan a few years back that he was getting disenfranchised with the way college basketball was going and some of the things that are coming in the game and that maybe older coaches who like things the traditional way you know that it wasn't for him anymore now as we look John Beeline is not coaching the NBA anymore and might be coming back to college coaching. So that does change, I guess, over time. But I don't think unless something happened where maybe the new coach at North Carolina doesn't do a very good job and they convince Roy to come back in a couple of years, maybe. But I think it's a legit retirement. Are we entirely sure that this is completely Roy Williams' idea? And I know it's still too early, but he there was some turbulence yeah, at North maybe. Carolina. The, the, they were better this year, though. No, I don't think they would push Roy out. At North Carolina, because that, that North Carolina job has always been a North Carolina guy. And Roy Williams was like groomed for that position and he turned it down uh, at one or two points, but he en- ended up coming home and he was the successor to Dean Smith in a way, even though he wasn't the true successor. And they're looking for another North Carolina guy probably to fill that role. So, no, I don't think they would push Roy Williams out, but to hire, you know, the hot new name, Brad Stevens or Nate Oates or somebody like that. Where do you, I mean, you mentioned the name. I know that I'm just throwing this at you. I guess you probably don't have any inside info, but just based on the fact that you, you're good at reading tea leaves and you know what's open and, and what, what do you, where do you think John Beeline ends up? You know, I don't know. Cause I thought Indiana made a lot of sense and, and it didn't really seem like there was much smoke there about him. And, you know, maybe North Carolina is a good fit for him, but I don't really think that they're going to go outside the North Carolina family there. Just, and I haven't seen it being mentioned. I, you know, I think it depends. You know, if, if Jim Beheim retired, he could be a really good fit at Syracuse. Uh, if he wanted to coach, let's say Mark Schmidt were to leave St. Bonaventure, he could, you could kind of see him going to Bonner or finishing up at maybe one of the local schools. I think Canisius and Niagara are too small 
but maybe Bonner or UB. Uh, and maybe Michigan State, if Tom Izzo were to leave, or, or even Michigan, if Jawan Howard went back to the NBA, I think that might be a good fit. Or maybe there isn't a fit, and maybe John Beeline is done coaching because he hasn't, he said he wants to still coach, but you haven't really heard much rumblings that he's in the mix for this job or people have interviewed him. You know, it's been very quiet about when and where he will return to coaching. John Beeline is 68 years old. Uh, just turned 68 last, uh, well, no, we're in February now. He turned 68 in February. Yeah, Roy Williams last is month. 70. Uh, guys coach into their 70s now, but as time goes along, maybe if John Beeline doesn't get back into coaching this year or next year and he gets to be 70 years old, then maybe, maybe he doesn't coach again. I also mentioned at the top of the podcast, the Sabres won a game last night. Uh, I actually turned the game off because I felt the Sabres had it in hand, even though they blew that three-goal lead heading into the third period uh, a couple of nights prior. Um, that last night was just their night. I didn't, didn't sense much drama there. I just have been monitoring the games to see if they win or lose, uh, more so than watching the quality of hockey. Um, I don't know if it's as simple as getting Lena Solmark back. They've been much more competitive. Um, and I don't know, you know, you, you hesitate, but you all know how franchises work when it comes to finding ways, if you're in the front office, to rationalize that things are going to be okay. Um, human beings are pretty good at, at doing that. And I wonder if, I wonder what the Sabres front office is, is thinking when they stop and imagine if Jack Eichel's not hurt and Linus Olmark plays the entire season, maybe that's enough. Enough? I don't know, but better. I'm thinking that's – Better, You right? can rationalize it. I'm saying as fans and people on the outside, you know, I think – or the media, I, I think you look at it and say, look, you still got a long way to go. But this dangerous thinking, Right. If uh, you can say, well, just if, think of the games we would have won if, you know, we win, we win, uh, let's say we win even a third of those games if Jack Eichel's there. And then if Linus and Jack are both back, then we have a 50-50 shot on any given night. Yeah, I think, you know, the it, at the end of like football season, a lot of that happens because you win two or three games in the course of a football season and it's a big deal. You know, it's a big chunk of your schedule and all of a sudden teams can talk themselves into a certain quarterback or a certain coach. Sabres won one game in a hockey season, a shortened one, but still, uh, you know, not a 16 game uh, schedule to avoid a winless streak that would have been a record. So like this is they have not... been a lot more competitive in the past week, week or so. We sure. Um, it's, it's interesting. The I've seen, I have not, you know, been plugged into the news conferences and, and other things like that, but I've seen, uh, I know John Warrow tweeted it a few days ago and I think Matt Beauvais did last night about, you know, how impressive uh, the new coaches, you know, speaking and things like that. And I hasn't think, that been said about yeah, pretty I mean, much every new coach, you know, I mean, we're, we were just saying that about Ralph Kruger. We were just saying that about Rex Ryan. Right. We were saying that about, I remember Jerry Sullivan writing a column about how refreshing it was uh, th that Mike Malarkey 
uh, had the, this great body language at his introductory news. I want to read the column that says, or the tweet that says, you know, this guy is a dummy. He says nothing. Because even yeah, when that was happening with Phil Housley, people were kind of afraid to say that, that this guy has nothing to say and he just stares at microphones all day. People weren't really, you know, laying it on thick with that. Well, it's always the opposite of, you know, everybody was like, you know, Sean McDermott is refreshingly boring, you know, compared to Rex Ryan. People do criticize Sean McDermott. It's a smaller subset, but some people are sick of him saying the same thing over and over again. Some people may be on this podcast. (laughs) I mean, it's an, it's all, I just find it interesting when you, you've got this new coach and it's like the, it, it, needs to be said that he's a good speaker or that he's good to listen to. I mean, Ralph Kruger was great to listen to for right. a while. It, the argument makes no sense. It's not like communication wasn't really the issue with the previous coach. And he was a wonderful speaker and, you know, filled up everybody's notebook. And it's, it's a common thing too in, in free agency and like around the draft of like, Oh man, this guy, like what a personality it's like. We met Emmanuel Sanders, met Emmanuel Sanders for what, 20 minutes over Zoom. And oh man, this guy, like he, he's a leader. He's one of the good ones, you know? Like, I don't know. It's like some fans eat it up. I think some fans probably see through it. And I'm not sure. I think probably the scariest thing for fans at the moment is the idea of clinging to an interim coach and not getting that, that fresh start. So not to say that people will be rooting for losses or anything like that, but words like that, you know, kind words to to that regard. And, you know, no offense to John and Matt, they're just making observations about, about what they hear and see, but I'm sure that's uh, not what a lot of, a lot of fans are probably sitting there thinking, I don't care. Like, don't, don't let me get attached to this guy because even if who knows, maybe he is the one, but um, I think people want a fresh start and don't want this guy carrying over into the new job. But I I guess you got to give him a fair chance. I, it's hard to imagine getting to this level of sport, the national hockey league, the national football league, whatever it is, even as an assistant coach without having pretty good communication skills. So I think that being a good communicator should be a baseline for, you know, as a coach. Uh, And that's why, you know, you think of Ron Ralston um, or these guys who are just, you know, zeros when it comes to personality, it's like, how do you, Dick Duran, of course, yeah, Dick Duran had the play, had the playing and the coaching as an assistant. He had the credentials, all that other stuff. He was just a zero when it came to personality. Um, So so, yeah, it's amazing. I'm sorry, Matthew. Bill Belichick's kind of the ultimate example of, I, I feel like it all, it's whatever is going to make a fan base feel good in that moment. And I get it a lot when Sean McDermott will say nothing or he'll deflect and I'll point that out. And people are, I, over the last four years, I've gotten so much, well, Hey, that's what Belichick does. Give him nothing, no leaks, no, you know, no bulletin board material as if no news ever gets broken, you know, like there, you know, plenty of news gets broken out. It's not, 
the Rex Ryan news that was getting broken, but that's just because there's not massive dysfunction happening within the building, but everybody wants to be like, yeah, be like Belichick if it suits them until the guy that speaks well and, and, you know, is real entertaining until they like that. Then yeah, this guy right here, that's our coach like with Rex. So yeah, the fans, and all you have to do is take a look at Belichick's coaching tree and all of his assistants who have tried to emulate him or replicate his, his everything to the down to his interaction with the media, Matt Patricia failure uh, and of his inability to communicate with the media was a major part of his downfall. Uh, Eric Mangini with both the Jets and the Cleveland Browns. And finally, in his final season with the Cleveland Browns decides, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to stop trying to imitate Bill Belichick. And people are like, where had this guy been uh, all the time? We like, we actually like Eric Mangini. It actually got him a job on television um, right after uh, he was fired by the Browns, but by then it was too late. Uh, he was pretty much had to win or else that season. He had, he'd worn out his welcome. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it works for Bill Belichick because I think he's probably a master communicator behind the scenes with all of his people. He gets everybody on the same page. And I think we're seeing that with Sean McDermott when he came in as the coach. And I even had a discussion with him about this at St. John Fisher, his first year um, in which uh, I think that it was important for him to make a strong first impression with the media. So he was a lot more, uh, using finger quotes, transparent, you know, he talked more, he would stop for a, you know, a casual conversation that was off the record. Uh, and then as he got more comfortable, you don't get any of that. And of course we can't compare last year, everything was zoom. Um, but even in 2019, he starts to, you know, everything is being more and more withdrawn and that's because he has established himself. He's winning. Um, he had that first impression, the whole thing. Um, and I'm just here to coach football. That's all I want to do. And anything else is a distraction from me winning football games. And you can get away with that when you've already put in the work to win games. Eric Mangini, Matt Patricia, you know, Romeo Cornell was always a nice guy. He never did that reticent, tight-lipped thing. But if, you're not, if you don't win, then that other stuff, you can't, you can't pull that off because people don't care. And Rex Ryan then is the 180 degrees of that. I'm just going to be the nicest guy. I'm going to be out there and funny and laugh. And, um, and then, and then I'm going to go to the world series game in the middle of the week when I should be preparing for the upcoming opponent, my brother and I are going to go to Cleveland and watch a world series game because it's not all about the football, at least not when, um, excuse me, not when he was in Buffalo. So, um, well, he also had the problem of there's more than one way to, effectively communicate with the media and develop that relationship, which perhaps some people think is a waste of time or some people think is, you know, not an aspect of being a coach, but it's part of buying yourself some grace, buying yourself some time and um, not just with the media, but with the fans, because, you know, that's how your message gets out there. And Rex Ryan was not good at it. Uh, he thought he was really good at it. And, he was good at it in New York. And then he spent so much time continuing those relationships with people in New York that he never bothered to build any allies in Western New York or even really any relationships, period. And so there's another element to that, too, Matthew, in that 
in New York, we were all seeing it for the first time. And he's on the world stage when you're in New York. So if you cover the NFL in Buffalo or San Diego or wherever, you're watching this Rex Ryan cartoon character, which was, you know, both funny, but also like, wow, I wish I could cover a coach like that. You were seeing it all over, but all his tricks and his gimmicks that wore out in New York on the international stage, he then tried to just do them all over again in Buffalo, but we'd already seen all that already. And it wasn't interesting. It, it wasn't kind of good. Like the Jets won. The Jets were kind of like the surprising team. Back to back AFC championship games because of Rex Ryan and his defense and everything he built. And then he came to Buffalo and tried the same act and people fell for it for a little while. I mean, people were excited about the hire and I was excited about the hire. I liked it, but I've said it on the show. I thought it it was what they needed, but he didn't follow through. That was by August of his first year. I was ready to say that it was, wrong it was a mess and I wrote it and it was it was the IK stuff that I was just like all right this is this is too much but I think a lot of uh picking up the outside linebacker IK and Impali who had just punched Geno Smith in the jaw breaking his jaw the Jets quarterback IK and Impali gets cut and put on waivers and the Bills picked him up off waivers almost as an F you to the Jets when probably not the most professional way to run your organization is just trying to own, you know, whether it's owning the libs uh, or owning, owning the AFC. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to own the jets is going to be it felt my, like a lot of know. what he did was with an eye on his old job an eye on his old bosses. And he was in, he would make all sorts of extra time for any New York media member that, you know, came up to training camp. He was, more than likely uh, feeding scoops to Manish Mehta, um, you know, because all of a sudden Manish Mehta is breaking Bill's news. Um, and, you know, there was other Jets reporters. And so it was like. Appearing well, on uh, the WFAN in New York, doing radio hits when local media was being told he's not doing any interviews. And um, at, at the um, owner's meetings, his first owner's meetings, he gets done with his obligations at the, uh, you know, little breakfast there where Buffalo media is there and other media, right. You know, anybody can kind of come on in and get a piece of Rex Ryan and everybody wants it. So after that, rather than, you know, like some coaches will do, they'll pull the locals off to the side and turn the recorders off and just kind of shoot the breeze. He did that with his, with the New York media. He went and he was talking to all his old buddies from the from the Jets beat while we're all standing there kind of like, all right, I guess we know where we stand. And that was after his first season. And, you know, New York reporters have said that he's he communicated like, man, I don't know what the deal is with these Buffalo guys. They're all over my case. Like, you know, you guys got to talk to them and like. You know, I, I had no problems with you guys. New York media is supposed to be so tough. What's the deal with these guys? And and so, yeah, there's more than one way to do it. And I think what Sean McDermott lacks in personality, he made up for in strategy. Everything is strategy with him. And so, like you said, early on, he had some uh, some coaching from that guy at 
uh, ESPN, Jerry Madelon. Is that Jerry Madelon? Yeah. He's, um, a, he's like a, a co a, almost like a personality coach, um, for on-air talent. Um, he's done work with ESPN. I don't know if he's employed there anymore or if he's sort of just a consultant. He's, he's not. I think he does. He's, uh, he does consulting work now. Independent. He's the brains behind Rodex success. Exactly. hundred percent. Like, uh, anybody who has seen Mike Rodak on television and thought, man, this is just amazing. Jerry Madelon is the thing. <laughs> That's um, like. <laughs> but he came in and did, you know, they had him doing some work with Sean. Uh, you could almost see some of the coaching points coming across in some of the press conferences, making the jokes, uh, trying to lighten the mood and all, all a part of buying a little bit of time, you know, buying that grace period. How long did it take before people were like, it probably hasn't really happened with, with Sean McDermott where it was like, okay, they're going to, they're not going to be very good. Then they make the playoffs and the next year they really weren't good, but it's like, oh, you know, we're going to Sean McDermott get some time now different rebuild than what Rex Ryan went through. But part of that is all messaging and how it comes across and the fans brace for it. Expectations. Uh, and it's covered a certain way. And they were almost shying away from expectations until about really until this past year. Right. They were, they shied away from expectations in 2019 as well, preferring to kind of get, you know, get some results to lean back on first. And then there was no avoiding expectations in 2020. They knew that, you know, people were going to be uh, thinking highly of them and that'll be the case going forward. But I think it'll not. be a trick this year to keep the fans. And, you know, if you want to keep the heat off of you, it's all about managing expectations and letting They've the fans that. know that, Hey, we have this new quarterback here. I mean, even though they messed up, I mean, just think of how all the bullets uh, potentially fatal bullets that Sean McDermott has dodged Um Hunting in the Snowvertime game uh, and uh, insisting on Nathan Peterman playing for Tyrod Taylor, insisting on Nathan Peterman starting the 2019 season, which I don't think was not having Josh Allen start in 2019, or excuse me, 2018, uh, not having Josh Allen start in 2018 was probably a smart move, but not Nathan Peterman or AJ yeah, McCarron. Not having a better option, and Brandon Bean right. has admitted as such that getting rid of AJ McCarron and going in with just Peterman and and Josh Allen was um, extremely bold. Not, I mean, bold is the wrong word because bold would suggest that there was something to back it up. It was reckless. It was wrong. It was you know very very bad job uh, by them. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of those moments, but because he, I think too as far as the messaging and as far as the everything goes making the playoffs was just like, it was like a hall pass for 2018 because it was like, see the, the culture works. Look what happened. You mentioned the, the punt in the, the snow overtime game. There was the hail Mary at the end of the, you know, the miracle play uh, the Bengals had against the Ravens to even get the bills in how much things change if they don't make the playoffs, go out, draft Josh Allen, go into the season with Peterman and Allen and, you know, end up 
in in that situation without that would have been the playoffs 19 to back it up. Or 19 or 20 how many years would that so they would have gone an 18th and a 19th straight year without the playoffs and then they would have gone into 2019 i mean they would have had a lot of pressure on them a ton of pressure and you don't know how that changes everything decision making everything else uh, there it, it's hard to understate what what that playoff appearance did for them and it was really you know a nine and seven season doug marone did that uh, but you know the way things break you know it was a playoff season and a terrible performance in the playoffs and uh, they tripped and stumbled their way to even getting to that playoff appearance but it bought them a lot of time in terms of their messaging and their their expectations they they got a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and I think that gave them enough breathing room to really sink their teeth into building what they wanted to build. And hence you can't, you come in like Rex Ryan, right. And you can't even, you can't take a step back. That probably would have been the move to say, all right, I'm taking over this team. We need to hit the re- quarterback position screwed me in New York. We're going to hit the reset button and, and all this. You can't do that if you're Rex Ryan because you walk in and you start talking about the Super Bowl and how you're going to shove it up the Jets' asses and like you're just not going to thing on because it's about to be on. Right. You're, you're all you've already set the bar too high. He can't even help himself. So, um, I don't know, a bit of a tangent to go off of after uh, talking about Don Granados. Uh, right. Well, you wonder, I bet you Ralph, but... Ralph Kruger's pro- uh, if Ralph Kruger is not thrilled that he's out of a job and just collecting a paycheck right now, which may be the case. Um, I think he was coaching at some point. You wondered if that was his end game was just fire me so I can get out of here and, and count my money um, as opposed to, you know, trying to finish this thing. But if Ralph Kruger did intend on remaining the Sabres coach and trying to build something, my guess is he's sitting there thinking like, when we began this conversation, like the front office might be thinking right now, if only Linus Olmark and Jack Eichel had stayed healthy, we'd be tied to be a totally different conversation. Right, honey. <laughs> right, Ralph. You know, ah, damn it. But that wasn't the conversation a month ago. It was Ralph. This is embarrassing. Like you should be ashamed of yourself. You know, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> and so all these same problems, you know, that, everything changes sometimes, you know, a little bit of messaging, a little bit. I don't think anybody yet has told Don that his club is embarrassing and, uh, you know, aired grievances in that way. Just He was part of it, right? I mean, he's not new. He wasn't brought in from somewhere else. So they should retroactively tell him just, just in case you missed it a month ago, you should be embarrassed. (laughs) Oh, um, what else do we want to hit on today? Um, we're kind of doing a, a free form Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK. Um, Jonah, what do you got floating around? You know, I don't know. I, we've gone over April fool's day in jerseys and Rex Ryan and communication styles. I was taking notes for communication theory classes, a free wheeling Tim Graham and friends yeah. brought to you by CTBK. There's only four four teams left playing basketball. Right. You want to handicap the final four? 
I think Gonzaga is going to win. I don't know. They're that's pretty much the chalk pick, but. They've all right. How the about this? Let's get into this because this is, uh, I had, uh, I was really into Indiana basketball for a long time. I had a cousin uh, who is my age who played uh, there for Bob Knight uh, was, you know, highly recruited from the time he was probably in eighth grade or whatever. Um, and so I was just always in on Indiana basketball. And I used to think Bob Knight was uh, really cool and I got a kick out of him. Of course I was, 17, 18 years old at the time. And as, as my life uh, went on, uh, I've realized that, you know, Bob Knight can eat a bag as far as I'm concerned. Um, But that 1976 Indiana team, it's hallowed in the fact that it went undefeated, has not been matched. Um, And there have been teams, you know, most notably, I think the UNLV UNLV team uh, in 1991 that made a run at that. Uh, and a lot of people didn't want him to do it because a lot of, you know, people thought Tark was dirty and maybe he was, I don't know, but uh, he was never really caught. Um, but I just don't seem, I know it's mentioned a lot when, when, when Gonzaga's discussed on these broadcasts that they could go undefeated, obviously, but it's almost like it's just a footnote or a, it's not discussed as much as it used to be, but is it, I mean, as time well, goes on, I think on, that's that maybe a function of this being a little bit of a, I don't want to call it an asterisk season, but maybe in that regard, because they didn't play a big non-conference schedule against all the best teams. And now they're doing it in the NCAA tournament, but it's not, you know, Kentucky was undefeated up until the final four a couple of years ago. And there was a lot of talk about, them being undefeated in the first. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like there's as much value, you know, like this. I think it's a little bit of the disrespect to, and maybe I wouldn't call it disrespect, the the lack of respect, if that's any different, to Gonzaga playing in a smaller league and they went 20 and 0 or whatever it is against supposed inferior competition. And so it doesn't really feel as impressive. It's not like the Patriots going 16 and 0 or 19 and one or 18 and one, whatever they did. That was a lot of the same criticism about UNLV at the time too, because they came out of a tiny conference where they just ran it up on everybody. I think it's impressive what, if Gonzaga wins the capstone on the, I mean, not the capstone, but reaching the top of the mountain after these 22 years or so of being that plucky underdog mid-major that was getting into the tournament and getting first round upsets to now being back in the tournament every single year since then and kind of moving up from a, team that upset teams in the first round to a team that was regularly getting to the sweet 16 elite eight they really didn't crack into the final four until a few years back and this would be their first national championship if they win um you know i just think it's a good basketball story seeing that program rise from where it was to now being a powerhouse and and a new type of blue blood they're good every year they have the best players in the country now. The best recruits go there, and they're a powerhouse program. They're just not in a powerhouse conference. Yeah, you know, I just wanted to look it up. I couldn't remember if they were in the Big West at that time or the Pacific Coast Athletic Association, which that's when UNLV got real was starting to become like a Gonzaga was at that time. You have in that uh, conference UC Santa Barbara, Cal State Fullerton. UC Irvine, Pacific, and a couple of schools that would get into the whack eventually, Fresno State, San Jose State. Uh, but then the Big West, when they're going uh, crazy with uh, Larry Johnson and Stacey Ogman and all those guys, uh, yeah, 
I guess it's just a morphing of that, that previous one, Pacific, UC Irvine, Utah State, Long Beach, Fullerton, Santa Barbara, New Mexico State. Um, and yeah, that's similar to, to Gonzaga, but it's, it's, they've then established themselves as a perennial contender, which, you know, not a flash in the pan, not just because they had one or two good players go through and you're able to sustain it for four to six years. This has been going on for 20 years. Yep. You mentioned UNLV. It, it rang a bell that Carlin Hartman, Grand Island graduate, always New York player, moving over to the UNLV staff from he'd been at Oklahoma State for the last few years. That came out today. So he'll be sitting. Yeah. What's the, I, I saw you tweet that out, Jonah. Can you give us a little bit about his background? Because I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about him, but here you have a guy coaching a, an well, assistant at UNLV is a pretty He was a great deal. player at Grand Island, an all Western New York player who played at, I'm drawing a blank on this now. But he played college basketball. He had a very successful career. And he was coaching in the ranks. He was at Tulane for a while. And he ended up at Oklahoma State the last couple of years and thought maybe he'd be in line for a head coaching job, if not now, you know, before now. And he was working for Lon Kruger at Oklahoma State, who retired. And Lon Kruger's son is the coach now at UNLV. So that, I think that's the connection that, that got him the job there. You know, he did a lot of good things at Oklahoma, though. He, I, I kept saying Oklahoma State, it's Oklahoma. He re, was part of the recruitment of Trey Young and Buddy Heald and a lot of the success that they've had over the years there. And UNLV's not in quite the same conference as Oklahoma, but it's still, you know, a high major, big-time job. Yeah, I'm just looking at Carlin uh, Hartman here on the UNLV website. His, uh, his bio, of course, uh, Kevin Kruger is the head coach there at UNLV, uh, where his father used to be the where coach. Where did he play? Why can't I think? Oh, no, he did play at Tulane. So I, I was confused. That. I thought he coached at Tulane. So there we go. All right. What else is going on in high school basketball, Jonah, or high school well, sports? High school basketball a little is over. High school football starts this week. Right. It's football season. already started tonight, actually, with games in the snow. Can you believe it? They're playing football in the snow. It's poetic. The nerve. More than a quarter of the college basketball players in the country are in the NCAA transfer portal. A quarter? That's what I heard today. It's probably and it goes up every day. So more than twenty-five percent. What about Buddy uh, Bayheim? Is he in the portal? Sure I don't think so. No, no, I don't think so. But I mean, <laughs> that was the one name. thing uh, Jim said. He said, "I know this guy's not in there." I was going to say, though, how about the run Syracuse went on after we, we dug their grave on this show? Yeah, I kind of was thinking that when we were talking about the podcast, we had already buried them, and I'm looking at the numbers, and I'm thinking they can still make a run into the tournament. And then when they get in, they always win games. That zone always causes people problems in the tournament. Maybe we fired them up. I'm yeah. sure. They were listening well, to Tim Graham and friends. Our, uh, our guest did get Jim all fired up. I don't know if you caught that. No, or... I didn't. It was like a few weeks. I want to say it was a few weeks after we had him on. And, you know, I think Matthew must have written something about a couple of players that, man, if they had been in the lineup a little bit earlier, you know, who knows? Maybe Syracuse could have won five or six more games. Maybe we're having a different conversation. And Jim Beheim, being the, for lack of a better term, ass that he is uh prickly yeah he said you know it's in some post-game news conference question from matthew about what those guys had contributed or whatever 
And Beheim answered it. And then as he's about to get the next question, stops and says something to the effect of, you know, but I guess I don't know what I'm talking about. I've only been coaching basketball for 40 years. I need some guy who's, who's five foot two and, and never, you know, never played basketball in his life to, to tell me how to do things. Like, I guess I need, you know, advice in that way. And it's just like, just a, just a classic Jim Beheim. Right. That's, I mean, would you expect anything less? We, we should have spent the whole conversation at communication style talking about him because he's a interesting case study. And it goes back to exactly what we were talking about. Like, you know, this guy can just be brazen as he wants because I suppose, especially college sports gets weird because these guys, you got quasi fan coverage sometimes, you know, at some of these, especially college football programs. Smaller market would talk about Bob Knight used to be that way. People would ask him a question and if he had tried to, and then if he came back at you, your name was in the paper. It wasn't just Bob Knight had this to say. It was Joe Smith from the Louisville Courier uh, Journal asked him that. So now so everybody, so you're getting ragdolled as a reporter just because Bob Knight's deciding to make you his plaything. But yeah, and, you get um, like, you get student journalists at, you know, so a lot of these places, regardless of how big the journalism programs are, you know, you're going to have a student paper or whatever. And you're going to have these, you know, now all these blogs popping up. Like, you know, I know a lot of the college football beats are that way where it's like, you know, distinguishing between fan and media gets, gets blurry sometimes. And so uh, th- it becomes very interesting what some of those guys can get away with and how they act. And yeah, small market, you know, you're kind of like a guy like Jim Beheim. I think some people have soured on him at Syracuse, but he's still a legend. He's still you know, like the most, uh, you know, popular figure in the campus's history. And in most cases, you have these guys that are like the highest paid, you know, not in the case of Syracuse, a private university, but the, a lot of these places, like these guys are the highest paid public employees in their state. And they're treated like, you know, they're, uh, they can do no wrong and sometimes covered that way. Uh, you know, the, the t- people like Mike Rodak and, you know, trying to cover these guys in the traditional standard, you know, way objectively are, you know, end up fighting an uphill battle in a lot of ways. And there's not, not a lot of rules in college. They can just like, you know, I think Rodak's co-beat partner down there like gets iced out of press conferences a lot of times because they just have your credential yanked and whatever. Right. You got to go to court for you know to get access. Um, yeah, the NFL. I mean, even you mentioned Manish Mehta earlier. I mean, having when he got his credential yanked by the New York Jets, that was a rare. I don't know how many times that's happened. I can't think of any other example, and this probably happened maybe below the radar, but. In the, in the major league sports, you just don't lose your credential you because it, it's too much of an embarrassment. It's not what they want to deal with. They don't want to, you know, just the, the guy's a pain in the ass. Just let them keep showing up and covering the team and, you know, There's whatever. writers associations that can have some say that some protection, but it's not as strong in college and you don't have good access in college to begin with. I mean, there's just... Right not a lot of rules at a lot of these places. It's like, yeah, freshmen don't talk. Well, why is that? Like, you know, if they just don't, they got to focus on. So, all right. You know, so you got these major freshmen just like lighten everything up. And then, you know, at that 
national primetime game, all of a sudden that freshman learned how to talk because ESPN wanted to do a big uh, feature on him. And <laughs> right. all of a sudden, well, the rules are the rules until they're not the rules. And so it, it's tricky. And that's, uh, that's why Jim Beheim can get away with doing stuff like that. You know, you've got uh, my old colleagues at the Syracuse Post Standard that, that do a very good job covering, covering Jim and covering the program objectively. You've got some real serious student journalists uh, at, a, at a, a very good journalism school, but he just feels like he can pick on those people. And Doug Marone tried to make, tried to make that his thing when he was the head coach of the Buffalo Bills in the NFL. He tried to take that college football interaction with the media where he would show deference to people like me and Jerry Sullivan and then just totally shit on the younger journalists, the people who worked for the team, um, female journalists, whatever, whoever he thought he could bully, he went ahead and did it. And those that he didn't think he could get away with it, then they were, oh, well, uh, you know, we're buddies, right? You know, that type of thing. It didn't, it didn't work well. I was okay with Doug, but I don't, I don't, I think my, I, I didn't have a great experience, but I, I was okay with Doug because he tried to act like we were tight and I just didn't, but then he would, he was just a total dick to so many other people that I knew that like, he's just, he's just trying to work me. He doesn't really like me. Um, he's just trying See, to work. I'm, me. So I, I lost I'm respect by that uh, because it's, a, it's at least better than the opposite where Rex Ryan was like, I don't even need to work this guy. <laughs> like, right. You know, like, I don't even need so, to learn your name. Right. It's like, oh, I, it, at least if somebody's trying to work me, it's like, Hey, they think I'm important enough that I need to be worked. Like, you know, that's something. <laughs> um, very rare do you get genuine, authentic interactions. Uh, you know, there's that that natural wall that's up. Using coaches in the media sometimes. So being, being worked is better. Matthew, you're breaking up on us. You're pulling the Lex Luger. You're starting to freeze. No, you froze on. Now yeah, it's telling. Froze. Now it's telling me my internet is unstable. Is it me? It's the power. It's the power washer it's outside you. your house. Better go tell them to stop. All right. Well, let's wrap it up then. That's our signal. That's our. That's uh, that's our cue to to get out of here. Um, I don't know what the theme of today's show was. Communication, the art of coaching. Here's what you do. You promote it and say, this is the best episode we ever had. And then when people listen, you'd be like, April Fool's, it's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I can't remember the last time I pulled an April Fool's joke. To me, making a, doing a prank on April Fool's is like making it a point to go out and get drunk on St. Patty's Day or New Year's Eve. It's like, eh. yeah, it's very unoriginal. Right. I let me do it my way. The only thing I want to see. I don't need, I don't need to be told when to drink. Has anybody ever proposed to their girlfriend on April Fool's Day and then woke up the next day and be like, oh, you knew that was a joke, right? You know it's happened. I know it's happened, but I don't know of any real-life examples of it. Well, that would be good. If you're listening to Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by (laughs) CTBK and you have either proposed or been proposed to on April Fool's and then later found out it was a joke, please contact us. This is actually... Where I went, I went on a little autopilot there. It was like all the times I watch Maury. Uh, it's when he gives that uh, that little 
call to action at the end of the show. If you or anybody in your family would like a DNA test or to be proven that you're the father, reach out. I thought you were going to read a phone number. I was like, where's this going? Yeah. Send an email, send an email to uh, T Graham at the athletic.com. I'll, uh, I'll get your story on the air. Zoom right in. All right. Uh, thanks guys. Enjoy your weekend. And, uh, talk again early next week. This has been Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK. I'm Tim Graham of the athletic with Jonah Bronstein of the Bronstein firm and Matthew Fairburn of the athletic. Thanks for listening. Tim Graham and friends is brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond.